My name is Melanie Marconi, serial entrepreneur, single mom, and founder and CEO of Vita, a co-working community designed to support modern life. I launched Vita two years ago while working and momming full-time, and it took true vision, lots of hard work, and a little bit of luck to make it a reality. Launching a new business or any other big goal or project while working, taking care of yourself, and raising small humans is an extraordinary achievement. But people do it all the time. And with some inspiration, resources, and advice from those who have been there, you can too. I created the Make Life Work podcast to share experiences from my own journey, as well as to learn from other women who are pursuing ambitious goals. Each week, we'll take an inside look at what drives us, why these projects are important, and how we structure our lives to make it all work. And now, on with the episode. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. I am excited to host another episode here of the Make Life Work podcast, and I am really excited to have with us today Khalid Thorne-Ladd, who's the Executive Director of Kairos PDX, which is a charter school here in Portland, Oregon. So, Khalid, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on. And I just kind of wanted to set the stage a little bit prior to getting into some questions, but you are a mom of two kids, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. Elementary age? I actually have a daughter that's entering middle school this year. She's oh, wow. going to be a sixth grader. Yeah. So wow, that's a <laughs> fun <big> time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to middle school online. <laughs> Um, and you live here in the Portland area and are you, are you from Portland? No, I'm originally from the East coast that have been here for almost 20 years. I came out here in my twenties, not to age myself, but, um, <laughs> and, uh, so have been here in my adult, you know, professional life, but none of my childhood was spent here. Here in Portland. Okay. Mine either. Yeah. So I'm always, <laughs> you are. And like I said, Kairos PDX is a charter school here in Portland, and it opened in 2014, right? Yeah. So though I would take a step back and say, so Kairos is a nonprofit organization and the school is probably our biggest program, but we do more than just the school work. And so the nonprofit was founded in 2012 and it started with the early learning network and it was targeting caregivers and family members of young children, zero to five and how we could support the growth and development of children in early childhood, recognizing that, particularly in the Black community, um, over 50% of children who are Head Start eligible are not able to access Head Start because of waiting lists and capacity. And there is a high number of children that are in what you would call family, friends, and neighbor care. And so, uh, and when we look at the trajectory of how children succeed, it starts early. And so we wanted a chance to connect with those who are working with young children and so, so they can set on a trajectory that led to success. Mm-hmm. And while we were running the early learning network, we began the business plan for Kairos Learning Academy, which opened in 2014 or was approved in 2014. And then in addition to that, we have an extensive amount of policy and advocacy work that we do as an organization and then training of teachers, uh, which we've done over the years uh, as well and are actually doing more of these days. I bet. Yeah. Some, um, a lot going on. Well, thank you for that. I didn't realize that it really started with the early, early learning network. And, and so were you, you were training these in-home caregivers to kind of like how to, to interact with kids in a way that set up their kind of social emotional health or. Yeah, I would say I, training would be a strong word. I think our goal was to create a safe space to have honest conversations around 
child development, the neuroscience of learning, social emotional well-being, as well as parenting. And the intersection between that and just cultural norms. Our early learning network was targeted at the black caregivers for black children. So we recognize that there are different norms in within our cultural community and sometimes the intersectionality of those norms and what research says is not an like equal <laughs> even fit. Right. And so we really wanted to provide research-based information, but also have honest dialogue and conversations. And so it wasn't so much a training in the sense of we're just talking at people. It was really discussion that was sometimes super vibrant. At the time, my youngest was like a baby. And so it was also personal as a mother and the tensions with, you know, how do you how do you support the well-being of your child and the learning of your child as a working parent, as someone who, you know, may not know a lot about child development. And it's interesting, the information that's accessible is really limited as someone who spent my career in education. There was still a lot that I, you know, didn't know. I had access to resource to read about, but it's not mainstreamed in any way, sort of the knowledge around what, what children need to thrive. So yeah. <laughs> you really have to go looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really great. And is that a model that is here or was that like with the idea to kind of expand it, you know, into other communities or was it really focused on, on our Portland community here? Uh, it was focused on Portland. It could, I mean, I think the, we had talked about scaling it, uh, it really comes down to capacity. Uh, I think in this online space, though, we've talked about, we continue to do the early learning network. In the last year or two, we focused on STEM specifically. How do you introduce, because we have a partnership with OMSI, um, we've worked with them to look at how do you introduce STEM concepts at young, for young children and how everyday things that you do with a child can introduce science and math and We've, we've included natural sciences too in the environment in that learning. And so we're looking at how we expand access to it because we're in a virtual space through partnership with other organizations. But still that I would say that's mostly Portland-based. However, I think there is opportunity for people outside because it's online, anybody could <laughs> join in. And so, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the whole world is opening up in a way. Right, it's very interesting. On some ends, but it has like such opportunity like on the other side. Yeah. Okay. So cool. So then a couple of years later, you realized actually it would be even more helpful to our families if we were able to provide elementary education. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the genesis of the school. Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, there's five of us that started Kairos and four of us that really sort of stayed in it for the long haul. And we wanted to create a school space that looked and felt different than our current schools do in the sense of really creating a space of belonging for children, recognizing we had an achievement gap that hadn't changed in over 50 years. And so how do you create a prototype that looks and feels different and yields different results with the intent that it can also be a space from which learning can happen. Children can grow not just within Kairos and Kairos Learning Academy, but also in other schools that have similar demographics. So our focus or our intent has always been to be sort of a learning laboratory. Charters were started by um, AFT, American Federation of Teachers, with the intention of creating laboratories from which the system can learn from and then systematize that learning. 
They've gone in different directions since then. But I think our founding of Kairos and Kairos Learning Academy specifically was under the same intention that charters were started, which was not to create several Kairoses, but to create a model that the larger system could learn from and take practices from so that we can improve education and public education for all children. And have you seen any, you know, has that kind of filtered in? So our um, public school system is called Portland Public Schools. Has any of the learnings or I guess it's what, six years in, has it infiltrated at all into like the bigger system in that way? I think it has. I think there's room for growth, though. I think, unfortunately, it's a slow road sometimes for PBS. We have done training of PBS teachers and some of our models and our our ways of being uh, with children. Uh, and we've had a, a number of teachers, not just teachers, staff within the Learning Academy that have worked in other Portland school buildings and have talked about how different Kairos is and how it's changed their way of working with children. And I think, you know, some of them have moved on to other places and they've said that they've taken what they've learned at Kairos uh, and applied it. It's not easy when you don't have organizational cultures within a school building that are conducive to change. And I know that some of the staff that have gone elsewhere have struggled with that. But we've had a lot of other districts outside of PPS also inquire and want to work with us. And we are looking now at how we do more training of teachers and educators, not just teachers, but people working with children within the school building uh, to do some of our work around resiliency-based education, social-emotional learning, those pieces that really build uh, resiliency for children to thrive. So, yeah. And we do so in a culturally responsive way. I think there are districts that do that. One of the districts we had talked with is the Gladstone School District, and they you know, have a strong track record of, of doing the social-emotional whole-child development work, but they talked about how they can do more to support Black kids specifically. And so we sort of are in this space of both cultural specific work and and cultural affirmation, as well as social emotional learning, which really um, is something that all children, regardless of race, need. So we, I I think, we dapple in both those spaces in terms of learning and growth. Right. And both of those are huge, huge issues right now with, I mean, obviously like school you know, going online and being virtual learning and and parents, you know, getting a deep dive and a much closer look at what kids are doing during the day and what their curricula looks like and um, how their kids learn like that we haven't seen. And then obviously with, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that have been happening specifically here in Portland. And it Mm -hmm. seems like you and Kairos are just very uniquely positioned to address a lot of these issues that have not been addressed properly for a really long time. So how how is that kind of shaking out for you personally and then the school and the kids and the families that you work with? Yeah, I mean, we've been an explicitly sort of uh, anti-racist education organization from the beginning. So helping children feel good about the skin that they're in and affirming their own identity while also honoring the identity of others has been really important for us from the get-go. And I think unlike many schools, we talk about race both with our kids and with our families as early as kindergarten. Children assign different beliefs about different children early. The research says it's around three years old where children begin to sort of bucket children based on race. Uh, so stereotypes begin to develop as early as three. Children notice difference as babies. 
They, they assign that difference characteristics by the time they're in preschool. So when kids are entering kindergarten, things are already there in their brain and they don't know why or what, but our failure to talk about it is really detrimental to helping children be accepting and understanding of difference. And so Kairos has tackled that from the beginning. We've also had workshops with families about this. We do a lot around family engagement, uh, which I, I think is important for any educational entity to understand the role of families in the development of the child. But anyway, I think in this current moment, uh, those things are very important. Having literature that accurately reflects the diversity of our children and does so in a way that is not deficit-based, but asset-based, that does so in a way that is not in any way creating a dynamic of shame around certain identities. I think there is a tendency to rush and, and well-meaning, you know, white parents will say, oh, I'm going to get books uh, about Black people. And so they get books about the civil rights movement. And then the schema that these white children create around Black children is just that they've been oppressed their whole life and not seeing the beauty and the richness of culture and the norms, like they eat breakfast with their family and do things that everybody else does. That's not set into their mind. And that impacts their perspective and belief around children of color as well. Uh, and vice versa. And, you know, you can take that analogy in different directions. But so I would say Kyra says a lot around that. I think also in this moment and movement, our policy work has increased significantly because we've always been pushing for policies that are equity focused and ensuring that all children have access to quality education. But I think in this moment of Black Lives Matter, there is more of a laser-like focus on, I would say, government and other institutions to figure out how to do that more. And so We've been at the table with a lot of elected leaders providing tools and suggestions on how to do so, who to partner with, and why really it's important. I actually wrote an op-ed yesterday about how we can't talk about Black Lives Matter and ignore Black children. And the fact that we have, I would say, denied Black children access to quality education. That's not just an Oregon issue. It's a national issue for decades is a huge civil rights issue. And the vision of Brown versus Board was that not only that schools would be integrated, but that there would be quality education accessible to all children. So this idea of separate and not equal, there's been a lot of focus on anti-segregation and the integration and not a focus on within the integration, ensuring the experience of school is positive for all children. And what's happened in, in some schools that have integrated They've experienced, I mean, obviously, right when Brown versus Ford happened, you had Black children really being bullied and oppressed and like targeted. And that the trauma of that, I listened to an interview of a woman who was a civil rights leader and the impact and trauma of how she was treated as she was one of the first children to integrate her school, you know, way back <laughs> in the 60s. But like that trick, you know, Fast forward, we have schools in Portland where you have a tale of two cities in one school where you do have black and white children, but who's in the AP classes and who is in the remedial classes and how they're treated by teachers, the disproportionate discipline issue that we see in Portland schools as early as kindergarten and yeah. the narrative that creates for the child and the self-esteem issues that come, you know, like there's so much layered in. And so if we're to live out the true vision of Brown, 
we have to look at what the experience is for black and brown children in our schools and ensure we're really creating places of belonging for children to thrive. And I, we, I and Kairos, we talk a lot about love and belonging because the neuroscience is really clear on how that's linked to learning. So if children do not feel seen or valued or if they feel threatened in any way or they feel targeted in any way, their brains are actually not operating at their fullest capacity to learn and they start to shut down. So it's really important that we create spaces where children know that they are welcome and that they are seen and valued. And I think Kairos does that well and and can certainly offer to more both, how do you create that culture and and how do you do the self-reflection to understand where, when, how your implicit bias shows up because we all have it. And what to do to change behavior towards being better, because I think we can. That's the awesomeness about human behavior and neuroplasticity. We can change, but we have to be intentional and reflective in order to do so. That's a long answer, but... It's a great one. And it really touched on on so many of the issues that I think so many parents and um, community members are are engaging with right now, especially talking to kids about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a white daughter who is in second grade and, you know, her heart has been so full of, of what's happening, but it's, you know, a, as a, a white mom, like talking to her about it, I, to your point, like, don't want to, I want to make sure that it's done in a way where, you know, we're, we're all people and we're all the, you know, your mm-hmm. friends are all the, you know, kind of experience as you do. We all eat breakfast and we all go to school, but there's, you know, a history that you also need to be aware of and that kind of fine line between talking about it. And, and she, it, it saddens her heart so much to think that her friends or people um, have experienced things, you know, that she hasn't had to experience. And so it's been very eye-opening from a seven-year-old perspective to learn about that. And, you know, also at her school or even in society in general, we don't talk about race or racism very often. Now, now, you know, things are, it feels starting to to change a little bit, but for a whole seven years, like no one really talked about it, right? Right. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's part of the challenge. It's part of the challenge. <laughs> so I, I really, yeah, like admire and value the work that you and, and all of the Kairos team are doing. And the other, the other project I've been following here in Oregon is the Reimagine Oregon Coalition, which I think maybe you were referencing before when you were talking about working with um, elected leaders and community organizations. And my understanding is that the goal is to eradicate systemic racism in Oregon. Like, mm-hmm. is, that, mm-hmm. is that kind of the essence? Yes, of- that's, the, that's the goal. I would say reimagine is also, from an education standpoint, there's a frame around ending pipeline to prison sort of realities. And I think you know, reimagine came about partially from the protest movement and what has happened on the ground with police and police brutality. And, and recognizing that that starts early with how our children are treated in schools and what are the practices that perpetuate or negate, you know, that trajectory. And so reimagine is specific, I would say, to that when it, when it comes to education, but it's looking at what are the policy levers that influence those things. And so there's an emphasis on restorative practice 
and the importance of restorative practice with a culturally grounded lens. A restorative practice can be used against its intent, depending on who's doing the training and what the mindset is of the people implementing restorative practices, if that makes sense. So doing it from, you know, implementing restorative practice across the board for agencies and entities working with youth and doing so from a lens that is asset-based and grounded in sort of the cultural richness of the child, uh, children of color. There's also policies that are looking at, you know, a lot of a lot of dollars that go into education with little accountability on equity. And that's not acceptable um, when we're spending over a billion dollars on the system that as taxpayers, we're all paying for, but we're getting a bad return on that payment as people of color. And so those are some of the big policy issues that Reimagine lifts up and says, you know, we're going to have to address this. And it's going to be an interesting session. A lot of education stuff takes place at the state level with the governor, who's really the chief education officer in the state legislature, which controls the dollars and resources and state school fund. And then, of course, the departments. There are things, though, that we're working with the city and county on because dollars do go to youth services and camps and things for children, both at the city and county level. The sun service system is another. We're looking at some some of these restorative pieces and how they're implemented systemically and how do you create a framework where this there's an expectation people working with youth are trained in some of this, these things. And, you know, in the early childhood space, there is a parenting program that in order, if you have a contract with the county to do early childhood work, you have to participate in this parenting program. And so looking at things like that, well, if you're working with youth at all and you have a contract with the county, you should know restorative practices and be able to implement them so you're not contributing to the problem. So we're looking at things like that that are systemic. It sounds like there is so much to do mm-hmm. and so many things to change and so many things to integrate. And I think, you know, one thing that we've all been saying or hearing is that this is life's work and this is going to take a long time, but it's just kind of keeping after it. That's the important part. But from your perspective, are you hopeful? Does it feel like that there, that this is a moment that change is inevitable or possible? Like how do you personally feel about it? I'm an optimist. So I live in a hopeful space. Uh, (laughs) uh, I think, yeah, I think change is possible. I think it just takes intentionality and will and I do think that, you know, there's a part of us as human beings that does care for our fellow human being and, and, you know, that humanity in us, if we can tap into that, you know, the essence of our humanity and the positive connected with that, I think we can be better and do better. I think it doesn't happen though, just by saying, I want to do better. It does take intentionality and focus and, and honestly, a reprogramming of how things are done. And that takes time and uncomfortable at times. It's painful, I think, at times. It's, um, it, it, it's not easy to create sort of new schema around learning and education. But I do think, you know, we may not be where we want to be as a society, but we have evolved. Uh, we're not where we were. And I think I look back and see progress. Others might disagree with me. I know I've listened to some of them <laughs> uh, on podcasts and whatnot. but. I don't, I, you know, and maybe because of what I understand about the brain and learning, I don't think for me, it's helpful 
to not think change is possible. Like you don't get very far with that mindset. And so part of growth mindset is recognizing we haven't gotten there yet and looking at how we move forward to get to where we need to be. Yeah. Well, yes, that's nice to hear. I'm an optimist too. And it just feels like you, you can't even do anything without the hope that right. you see at it. So right, right, um, right. Does feel <laughs> hopeful in this moment. So you have a lot of things going on. You're involved in a lot of programs and initiatives. Plus, I'm sure you have so much going on with um, Cairo's Learning Academy, with um, everything moving online. So, can you share with our listeners like anything that you do in your personal life that really like helps set you up for success and for the ability to be able to have dedicated focus on your professional life and and projects? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a runner and I'm a morning person. So I get up early to run. Uh, and I usually take time in the running to think and meditate and just that's my time. And so I would say that has been really critical. I've started walking more too. I, you know, all the gyms are closed and whatnot. And I'm this online exercise I haven't gotten into. So, and I like being outdoors. So, and it's still nice weather. So, um, my off run days, uh, as I've gotten older, I can't run every day. <laughs> I've been walking, <laughs> but it's nice to just that exercise, that morning time to just think and reflect and pray. And I don't know, I, that time is so important to me. So I would say that is my, my, my joy juice. <laughs> and, uh, I like that term. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <That's key>. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast yeah. today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and listening to your insights. And if our listeners want to follow more about you or Kairos, what's the best way for them to find you? Oh, um, that's, <laughs> well, I can also look I, it up for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have an email, Kelly at Kairos PDX. We, um, our Instagram is, I think our biggest thing that people follow in the social media space. I'm not super social media oriented. Uh, I, my LinkedIn is another, I'm getting better with LinkedIn. I probably have more connections there than anywhere else. I don't post much on Facebook. And when I do, sometimes I'm like, oh dear, why did I do that? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, those are, that's what I would offer up. Yeah. Okay, we'll include all of those in the show notes too. I know you have some other things to get to, but thank you again for joining us. And okay. it was great speaking and good luck this fall with school. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. You too. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Make Life Work podcast. This episode was recorded at my home podcast studio, but usually we record on site at the Vita Coworking Community in Northeast Portland. This season is made possible by our friends at the University of Oregon Executive MBA program. Go Ducks! For show notes and other resources from this week's episode, please visit vitacoworking.com slash podcast. Have a great week and see you next time.